Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. Well, King, NPR News. Support for Planet Money comes from Squarespace, providing tools to help people turn their passions into a business with a customizable e-commerce website. Learn more at squarespace.com slash NPR. This is NPR News. Support for Mississippi Edition comes from the Mississippi Museum of Art's presentation of When Modern Was Contemporary, selections from the Roy R. Neuberger Collection, from Georgia O'Keeffe to Jackson Pollock. Details at msmuseumart.org. Good morning. It's 8.30. I'm Karen Brown, and this is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. On today's show, we'll talk to a Latin American business owner from Mississippi about Republican presidential hopeful Donald Trump's speech last night on immigration. Then, are Mississippi's elections secure? Later, auctioning off abandoned property in the state. You simply go online, you pick your property, you can look at the property because we have pictures of it on there, or you can go to Google Earth, and you go to Google Earth and it'll actually take you down to the street, and you can look at at the property that you're looking at. Several of these are homes uh, that are livable. And the first family of football in Mississippi, the Mannings, in our book club. That's all coming up. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. Republican presidential nominee Donald Trump is reaffirming his commitment to deport undocumented people from Mexico and to build a wall he says the Latin American country will pay for. In a speech last night, Trump stayed committed to the promises that have been the bedrock of his campaign. With just a little more than 60 days until the election, Trump also met with Mexican President Enrique Nieto Pieto yesterday before delivering the speech in Phoenix meant to clarify his position on immigration from south of the border. With us this morning to discuss the issues is Israel Martinez of the Latin American Business Association, which is based in Jackson. Good morning. Good morning, Mr. Martinez. Good morning, Karen. How are you doing? I'm doing great. So let's start with generalities. What was your impression of the speech? Did you hear anything you were surprised about that you didn't expect to hear? No. Um, the things that I've, I've heard are the ones that he's been uh, talking about, and uh, I'm, not, I'm not surprised, and uh, I don't think he's going to change on that. Even though he met with the Mexican president yesterday, you didn't think maybe he'd soften his stance in the speech? No, no. Uh, I think the visit was more than a strategy for him and uh, to get pictures and to show, uh, to try to show that he's running the, the show. And uh, I think the outcome was not good for uh, Mexico. And it was a little bit helpful for him. Because a Mexican president said that he told Donald Trump right from the start that Mexico would not pay for the wall. Later, Donald Trump said, well, we didn't do any negotiating at all. But you do think it was not a good move for Mexico? Not at all. Uh, well, I guess there are two points uh, to see here. 
the first is from the negative, I guess. Uh, our president is very unpopular, and uh, Donald Trump is very unpopular among Mexicans as well. And uh, that was the negative. And the positive thing is that uh, Mexico and the U.S. are friends, are countries that are partners. The, uh, Mexico, uh, it's the number third importer of the U.S. products and services. Uh, the trade is about $583 billion a year. So that's, that's really important. And for that part, uh, it's good to have a good relationship, productive relationship between those countries. But I think the visit was too soon. Mr. Trump said last night that the, the wall came back up and he, he described it as beautiful and impenetrable, a border wall that Mexico would pay for. He's still insisting on that. When it comes to something like building a wall, what does that tell you about a potential Trump presidency? Do you see that becoming a reality? No, but there's a possibility, of course. Um, I don't think that he's going to be the, the next U.S. president for many reasons. He has disrespect not just the Mexicans, but many people. Um, and something strange could happen in the U.S. politics where he could win. And at the end, is the U.S. citizens that will decide who is going to represent them. And if it happens that it's going to be Mr. Trump, uh, the relationship should be with respect between the U.S. and Mexico. He said last night, well, he used individual incidents of crime to paint a picture of Mexican immigrants as violent and dangerous. Do you think that uh, further alienated Mexicans, maybe those who, who weren't sure who they support for president? No, no, I don't think so. And I don't think that the wall is going to take place as well. Uh, there's been studies where it's going to be too much money and actually is not going to be helpful for the economies. You know, I, I think that maybe the key statement of that speech was, uh, if we can save American lives, American jobs and American futures, together we can save America itself. So it sounds like Mr. Trump is putting all of America's problems, uh, the inability to make America great again, on illegal or undocumented Mexicans in this country. Correct, correct. And I, I think that the audience need to do their own um, assessment of the situation. I do think that there's a problem with uh, immigration, uh, illegal immigration, and it's not just uh, Mexicans. It's uh, people from different countries that are running from wars, that are running from uh, poverty, uh, like my family did. And I think that uh, the audience needs to understand or try to see the position on that. And uh, the wall is not going to be uh, the, the solution, and deporting 11 million people is not going to be uh, a solution either. Uh, I think there's another uh, solution that must be find or found, and that's going to be working between the two governments. Israel, do you know of Latin Americans who support Donald Trump? Oh, yes. yes. And, and do they tell you why, given what you've just said about the disrespect and, um, and Trump being anti-Mexican? Well, I think that uh, Donald Trump presents himself as a savior, and I think the U.S. Uh, community uh, is tired of politics. 
So he presents himself as not as a politician, as a business person. And honestly, a lot of people like business person, business people. And, and that's one of the, the, the things that they like about him. And, uh, you know, they sometimes they're tired of the Republicans and the Democrats doing the, the same thing. And uh, they want to give it a shot to somebody else. But unfortunately, I do not think that this is the person that uh, is going to bring prosperity and uh, people together uh, for the U.S. Let me ask you finally, you've made your concerns evident. If you could uh, talk directly to Donald Trump supporters, what would you say to them? Well, I think that they need to make their own judgment. They need to do a lot of research, um, not just believe what he's saying, not just uh, if he's saying Mexicans are, you know, the worst people, they're criminals and all that. No, if they, 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 and I'm sure that they know a lot of Mexican people or a lot of immigrants, and they know that we work all the time. I mean, we see people working in construction from 5 a.m., 6 a.m., I mean, working at 40 degrees at 2 uh, p.m., working till late night, or we are working, uh, you know, the restaurants or opening businesses or creating jobs. I think they need to see that. And uh, unfortunately, this candidate is, is picturing us or painting us just as one color, and, and that's, not, uh, that's not the case. We are families. We are individuals looking for, you know, a better life for, for ourselves and for our families. Israel Martinez, thank you so much. Uh, Israel Martinez of the Latin American Business Association, thank you for being with us. Thank you. Up next, are Mississippi's election secure? This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. MPB Think Radio is your voice for Mississippi. If you or your community has an event coming up and you'd like help spreading the word, send us an email. You've got mail. To PSA at mpbonline.org. A few years back, eight students chose three different paths. Community college. My name is Jacob Miley. Hi, my name is Nancy Chen. The University of Maryland. Reese Hall. Carrie Chong. Alejandro Gonzalez. And private colleges. Evan Bonham. Margie Fuchs. Becca Arbacher. I graduated in May. Were they the right choices? Our college project reunion later on All Things Considered from NPR News. Today at 4 on NPB Think Radio. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. I'm Karen Brown. The FBI has asked states to examine their election processes after possibly uh, after possible attempted hacking has been detected in Illinois and Arizona. This has put the integrity of the voting process top of mind for voters and elections officials alike. We wanted to find out more about how elections results are protected in Mississippi. So MPB's Evelina Burnett spoke with Harrison County Circuit Clerk Connie Ladner, who tells her in the days leading up to the next election, officials will be preparing and testing election machines and ballots to ensure everything will go according to plan. Our computers here are, of course, locked up in the circuit clerk's office. We do the coding for election in-house. The election commissioners do the logistics and accuracy testing. Everything is done in-house, so it it doesn't go through so many hands. Um, It's just a few hands of elected officials here at the local level that make sure the ballot is coded correctly, that when you make that mark on the ballot, that is who gets the vote. It's tabulated to make sure that that's who gets the vote. Um, Testing is done for days and weeks 
prior to an election to ensure that who you vote for is who the tabulation is for. What steps do you take to make sure that it doesn't happen, that hackers could actually affect the election machines themselves? We take every precaution, I believe, to make sure that this this doesn't happen. You know, like I said, everything is locked up. It, it goes through a few hands. It's tested and tested and tested. The computers are not connected to the Internet, either wirelessly or a local connection. Um, so it's, it's something that we try to keep tight reins on. And when the memory cards are secured in the um, scanners to go to the polls, they're sealed. And it's, it's a seal that has a number that is recorded on every machine that leaves the, the office. Um, when that machine comes back on election night for us to get the memory card out to tabulate the results, the seal is double-checked to make sure that that is the seal that left. Um, so before the seal is broken, it is verified from the recording that we made when the LNA testing was done to make sure that it's still secured by the same seal that it left the office. I'm sorry, you said LNA testing? It's logistics and accuracy, and that's what I was saying um, earlier, that it makes sure that who you vote for is who gets the vote when it's tabulated. Um, that testing takes days, sometimes weeks ahead of the election to ensure that that there is no question when it leaves here that um, who you vote for is who gets the vote. Now, uh, Secretary Hosman said that actually the hackers often are interested in personal information, not so much the elections. So they're trying to get people's personal information so that they can get credit cards or whatever they do use. So um, what kind of steps do you take to secure voters' personal information? Well, the, the VR system, the voter registration system, is statewide election management system, and it's managed at the state level by Secretary Hoseman's office. Um, they do a great job with that. As far as the local level, when um, people register to vote and they give us their personal information on their application, um, that's not public record. So when when a candidate comes in to request who voted in an election so they can send out mail-outs, they are not able to have access to date of birth, uh, phone number, age, social security number. Um, that's kept private. MPB's Evelina Burnett with Harrison County Circuit Clerk Connie Ladner. Up next, auctioning off abandoned property in the state. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. The new MPB Public Media app is available now. Watch MPB TV, listen to MPB Think and Music Radio, and stay in the know with MPB News. Search for the MPB Public Media app in the App Store and Google Play stores today. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. More than 450 tax-forfeited properties in Jackson and Waveland are up for grabs through an online auction sponsored by the Secretary of State's office. Delbert Hoseman says the properties are abandoned homes and lots valued at a total of about $8.2 million. He tells MPB's Desiree Fraser placing a bid on the properties is easy. You simply go online, you pick your property, you can look at the property because we have pictures of it on there, or you can go to Google Earth, and you go to Google Earth and it'll actually take you down to the street, and you can look at at the property that you're looking at. Several of these are homes uh, that are livable. Uh, Most of them are like overgrown lots and that kind of thing, and some of them are valued at $100, some of them $250, so very low and we're, we're targeting, hopefully, people in the neighborhood that may want to buy that lot that's next door to them, that, that kind of thing. 
So we have 379 of them we're putting up for public auction, plus this center here. Are any of them commercial properties besides this one? No, most all of them are homes. I don't think we have any other commercials. Uh, we will do another auction. This is concentrated for, for really northwest Jackson, from downtown Jackson out to the Jackson Mall and, and the Hawkinsville area, in that area, Georgetown area in the north. Uh, so we're selecting that mainly for residential now. There's a couple of commercials. South Park Market Mall is one of them. But then we will start, We will do one for Southwest Jackson, the next one up, and that will have some commercial properties in it. And you also mentioned Waveland. Yeah, today we're announcing Waveland, and we'll be doing that for uh, 100 parcels in that city. They'll also be able to go online. They'll be able to see the location. We have pictures of everything. And then you can go online, put your bid in, and three weeks from now we punch the button and we'll tell everybody whether you want or not, and we'll send you a note. What is the value of these properties, do you know? These properties are valued at about $7 million. How much do you think you can recoup? Well, we, we did a similar one, and we recouped for the, for the city, the county, and the school districts about between four and 500000 the last time. Was that statewide? No, that's just the city of Jackson's. So uh, of the properties we sold in the last auction, we sold 279 when we did this just a few months ago, uh, we collected $144,000 for the school district and uh, 79000 for the city and about the same amount for the county. So that's important. You know, it's critical dollars now in a tight budget, for, just like the state has. The city has a tight budget and the county. But equally important to me is the fact they get back on the tax rolls. So in the future, people are going to start paying taxes on them. They've basically been abandoned. So if you buy the lot next door now, we anticipate you're going to pay taxes on it if you can keep it. So I think the income going forward is critical. MPB's Desiree Fraser with Secretary of State Delbert Hoseman on auctioning off abandoned properties online. Up next, the first family of football in Mississippi, the Mannings, in our book club. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. A few years back, eight students chose three different paths. Community college. My name is Jacob Miley. Hi, my name is Nancy Chen. The University of Maryland. Reese Hall. Carrie Chong. Alejandro Gonzalez. And private colleges. Evan Bonham. Margie Fuchs. Becca Arbacher. I graduated in May. Were they the right choices? Our college project reunion later on All Things Considered from NPR News. Today at 4 on NPB Think Radio. Today is Thursday, but you know what tomorrow is. It's Friday, and that means high school football. Hello, everyone. I'm Russ Robinson. Join me, Jay White, Jake Beverly, George Broadstreet, and the whole gang as we bring you all the scores and the stories that make up high school football across the state of Mississippi. So join us tomorrow night at 10, right here on MPB Think Radio. If you're print impaired, MPB's radio reading service is here for you. Our dedicated team of volunteers bring the world of news and entertainment to you. For information and to see if you qualify, call us at 601-432-6301. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. I'm Karen Brown. College football kicks off in full swing this weekend, and for many fans in Mississippi, no name means college football more than Manning. 
The quarterback rich lineage of Archie, Peyton, and Eli comes straight out of Drew, Mississippi in Sunflower County. In his new book, The Mannings, The Fall and Rise of a Football Family, author Lars Anderson takes a look at the football giants and the family's beginnings. Anderson tells us he has an avid interest in how the Mannings became who they are today. I'm always interested in how people become who they become. And so you got to go back to the beginning. So I dug deep into Archie as a child in Drew and just it was fascinated by how he grew up in this town where he said many times that he was kind of raised by the entire community there. He had perfect attendance at Sunday school. And he viewed those pins that he got for his attendance at Sunday school as a competition. You know, he didn't want anybody else to beat him at that. So he was competitive from an early age. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. And also he just, he had natural physical gifts at a very early age. How could he get the training in football in this tiny little town that would lead him to Ole Miss? Well, he grew up in a house that was right next to the high school. At that time, sort of the the coaches rotated in and out of these towns, and they would be put in housing that was next to the high school. So literally, like his next-door neighbor would be the head football coach. And I think when he was just uh, almost 18 months old, one of his first gifts from his neighbor, who was a high school coach, was a football. He had that in his crib and carried it around everywhere he went. So he had watchful eyes over him at a very young age. Let's get to the kids now. Cooper is the oldest and certainly one that we don't know nearly as well as we do Peyton and Eli. Yeah, and Cooper also had phenomenal physical gifts. He was a great wide receiver for his high school team in New Orleans. When he was a senior, he was the MVP of the team when Peyton was a sophomore and throwing passes to him. He got a a scholarship to Ole Miss, then was diagnosed with this spinal condition, which in retrospect, he could have been rendered paralyzed if he'd gotten hit the wrong way on the football field. So he couldn't play anymore after that. But he became Peyton's absolute biggest fan. You know, he could have gone one or two ways, and he decided, and and this all goes back to the parenting, he decided to be his brother's biggest fan. And so when Peyton was at Tennessee... You know, these two were spitting images of each other. When Peyton was at Tennessee, Cooper, who likes, uh, you know, to have a good time just like anyone, he would be out at a bar, you know, the night before a, a Tennessee game. And people would come up to him and they would be like, Peyton, why, why are you out of the game? Why, why aren't you, why, why aren't you sleeping? Why, what, what are you doing? And Cooper would sort of lean back in his chair and take a big drag off his stogie. And he's like, what? It's only Kentucky tomorrow? What's wrong? <laughs> you know, and just, and just keep up the uh, charade that he was painting. You said that Archie was given a football when he was 18 months old. What about his kids? Did he start them on football at that early an age? No, that's another wonderful thing. Like, he never forced sports of any sort on them. He just wanted them to write their own story. But they grew up seeing him being a quarterback for the New Orleans Saints. They grew up in the locker room. Following their dad to work for them was uh, hanging out in the locker room. Cooper and Peyton would, uh, they would find like discarded ankle tape that players would just, you know, throw on the ground in the locker room and they would wad that up and then they would run out into the empty Superdome in in, uh, New Orleans and play their own game of football. 
running the entire 100 yards in the empty dark Superdome. And that's really when they first started playing catch together was just when they were that young. Did you have access to the Mannings writing this book? I had a little bit of access to Archie. It was important to me to be transparent throughout this entire project. So I talked to Archie at the very beginning. He consulted with his entire family, and they said that they just, you know, they really didn't want to actively participate. And I appreciate that. Throughout the the reporting and, and writing of this, I was in touch with Archie, and Archie, in fact, fact-checked a bunch of the book with me. You also have to remember the context of all this. When I was writing it, is when Peyton was going through that garbage with Al Jazeera. They had been kind of burned. So I totally understood that. But I do want to emphasize, like, this isn't a, a gotcha kind of book. There's no dirt to be dug up here. This, to me, is more of an appreciation of the family. And I grew throughout this entire experience to really have affection for the entire family. We could talk about so much more, but we'll let people read the book. It's called The Mannings, The Fall and Rise of a Football Family, and its author, Lars Anderson. Lars, thank you so much for being with us. Thank you so much for having me. I appreciate it. Coming up after Mississippi Edition, it's Creature Comforts, MPB Season Pass, and Southern Remedy. And remember, if you want to catch the show outside the broadcast, just search for Mississippi Edition in your favorite podcasting app and listen whenever you like. It's easy. I'm Karen Brown. Join us again tomorrow morning at 830 for the next Mississippi Edition, only on MPB Think Radio.